it still, after 25 years, is no less amazing to see a baby come out. It's just incredible. And to see the things that they do the minute they come out. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they know how to suck their thumb, a lot of them, and they, they just, they cry. And then when you put them up to their mother, they kind of relax and kind of go to sleep. It's just adorable. It's incredible. I'd like to welcome Lisa Luffer to join me on the Face World podcast. Lisa is the chief of obstetric anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital. The focus of Lisa's clinical work is on the care of pregnant patients. Together with a highly skilled multidisciplinary team, Lisa administrates a service which features 3,600 deliveries a year involving both low and high-risk obstetric patients on the labor floor and in the associated operating rooms. I was so fascinated with Lisa's day-to-day work at MGH, and I had to speak with her about Face World Podcast. She couldn't be more supportive of my passion as a podcaster and carved out a precious hour on Sunday morning, New Year's Day, to sit down with me. I'm so thrilled to finally be able to share this interview with all of you. For those of you who are not as familiar with a day in the life of a doctor, without giving away this podcast, Lisa and someone in her position typically work 12-hour days, six days a week. Most days have very little planned or scheduled. Lisa has to react and respond quickly and effectively to any situation that arises throughout her day. But Lisa says, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world. Her leadership role at MGH has three major components. They are patient care, administration, and research. Her day can vary a lot. But during this one-hour interview with Lisa, our discussion evolved some of these questions I'd always wanted to ask her. For example, on patient care. With nearly 100 newborns a day, what is it like for Lisa to witness the birth of so many new lives? How has it changed for her over the course of 25 years. Also, as a mother of two boys, how does it hit Lisa when helping and relating to other women in the delivery room? How does she keep new moms comfortable not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally, and be there for them in a real way? Similar to speed dating, how does Lisa relate to her patients in a matter of 10 hours to one day? Now onto my favorite category of questions, the secret origin. From Dartmouth College to healthcare management consulting to venture capital to a Harvard Medical School, what is Lisa's secret origin story? And onto career and professional development, what are the tips and tricks Lisa has to offer for people who are considering medical school or the medical fields? Furthermore, I invited Lisa to discuss how she coaches young doctors and help them bridge the gap between medical school and a real job. Last but not least, she encourages me to be the one to write about mentorship to show how it works. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please check back to all the other episodes I've released of more than 30 episodes to date on five months of podcasting so far leave a review, or share with your family and friends. Without further ado, please welcome Lisa Leffert.
so thank you so much, Lisa, for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. Could you give me a sense of what your day is like, typically? Sure. Well, I, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world because I get to do so many different things. So I guess I would say my role at the hospital has probably three major components. And my day can vary a lot depending on which of those components I'm focusing on or which combination of them I'm focusing on. So one is that I take care of patients. And the patients I take care of are on the labor floor. So that's where the obstetric anesthesia comes in. So it's women who are having babies. And I do the anesthesia for those women, whether they're there to have their baby or whether they're there on the way to having their baby when they're pregnant and need some other things done. I also have an administrative role running that service. So when I'm doing that, it's more like a, I guess you'd say more like a business job in some ways. I also have other administrative roles in the department in the hospital. And so again, those are more like meetings mm -hmm. and planning programs and hiring people and HR things because those administrative roles are very varied. Mm -hmm. So some of my day could be spent doing that. And then the third component is research. Not kind of research in the most traditional sense. I don't sit in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. But I look at patient data and I try to answer questions about pregnant women, particularly what makes pregnant women very sick, the few things that are responsible for when pregnant women mm -hmm. die or get very sick. Mm -hmm. So that research time would look even different. Mm -hmm. Again, I'd be working with other people. Uh, I'm not the one who does most of the analysis but I do look at the data once it's analyzed and talk to other people and write the papers and write talks and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. patient care, what we call academic work, um, and administrative work. And every day is different. It may be all one. It may be a combination of another. And even from week to week, it's different because mm -hmm. I don't see patients the same day every week mm -hmm. and sometimes it's at overnight so wow. very varied so that's why I feel like I'm so incredibly lucky both because I love the components and also because it's so varied mm -hmm. I have questions possibly related to each one of these three practices or areas one of the stats I found out uh, online yesterday trying to do as much research as possible is I read the number 34, approximately 3,400 deliveries a year. And roughly that's nearly 100 per day. And yeah. I couldn't even imagine. Like, when I read the stats in my mind, I thought about one day I come home and tell my mom and say, I saw five babies being born today. And that's just unimaginable. Yeah. Um, what, what, is it, what is it like to witness so many births? And, um, and it's know? incredible. It's incredible. Uh, it never gets old and boring. Mm -hmm. I see more actual births by cesarean delivery only because we are 
part of the whole process of having vaginal births, but we're not necessarily in there the moment of the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, for the cesarean deliveries, we are there the whole time. Mm -hmm. So just by virtue of that, I see more of that kind of birth, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's birth, and it's still, after 25 years, mm -hmm. is no less amazing to see a baby come out. It's just incredible, and to see the things that they do the minute they come out, mm -hmm. like they 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 know how to suck their thumb. A lot of them, and they they just they cry, and then when you put them up to their mother, they kind of relax and mm -hmm. kind of go to sleep. It's just adorable. It's oh, wow. incredible. And you're a mom of two two boys, and that moment when you had your own child and continue to live through that moment to see other women deliver their babies some sometimes for the first time and how does it how does it feel i mean it, obviously it's very different um, experiences but how does it typically hit you yeah i think a lot of people will tell you that they don't so much remember their own births um I mean, meaning not that when they were born, but when their kids were born. <laughs> I mean, maybe these days they do, they'll say they do more, but I think, especially I was in the position of working really long hours and everything else. I mean, I was like half asleep. <laughs> so I very much remember raising kids. Um, but the actual birth process, I remember less, but as I look at the little babies and the parents looking at them for the first time and I think of everything they have ahead of them mm. in terms of raising the kids and, and all the different stages they have and I talk to them about it because I'm both interested in it and if it's a cesarean delivery, the women are very well anesthetized, they're very numb, mm. but they're wide awake. So it's important to keep them comfortable mentally and emotionally as well as physically. So they like it, most of them, when you're able to engage them and talk to them. So talking to them about some of the experiences that are yet to come and what it's like to bring mm -hmm. a brother or sister into the world for their only child or whatever, and reflecting back on my two, Sam and Eli, as they were little and then bigger and... Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's very cool. This is very interesting. We've gone into an area I didn't even prepare a, a question for, but you know, one of the reasons is I'm I love the fact that, that I get to interview other women for the podcast to talk about their professional work. And all of a sudden, as you're telling me the story, I realize that by having you there versus having a a male doctor in your role. And as much as I respect what they do, it's just as important. But a woman is lying there on the bed and contemplating all these things that could happen to them in the near future. It's happening then. It's happening now. And I think there must be a such an extreme love of comfort having you there, someone who has gone through this. And I think it's it's very it's very powerful. Um, so do you feel like that that's kind of the role that you're playing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important when you are a healthcare provider to be able to either 
empathize or sympathize with the patients. And you're certainly going to meet a lot of patients where you can't really know what they're going through. Um, and you're going to meet some where there's a lot of similarity between what they're going through and things that you've experienced. And so being able to kind of certainly invoke when you do know what they're going through, like if it's childbirth and they're in a lot of pain and saying, oh, I totally get, no, you're going to feel better, I promise it's going to get better um, when you've gone through it. But also remembering what it was like before I had gone through it and doing the same job. Mm -hmm. I, um, you can still sort of be there for them in a real way and, and sort of be sympathetic in that case and just sort of say, I, I see you're, you're in so much pain. Mm -hmm. This is really going to help you. You know, you're not going to feel like this forever. I mean, you learn the sort of from your own experiences that maybe haven't been the same, but are in some way analogous or referential. You, you sort of learn the kind of things that are helpful to hear mm -hmm. and those that aren't. And not everyone's the same. That's the other thing. That's one of the things I like so much about labor and delivery is that we, ha we need people, we have to have very intense interactions with them for a day, mm -hmm. 10 hours, whatever it is, each of us. And you have to sort of figure them out really quickly. So the way you might relate to one person might not work at all with another person. You might be very sort of sweet and comforting to one, and that might hit someone else very wrong. Uh, and you have to kind of figure that out really quickly if you want to be effective, because it's just as much about the personal interaction as it is about the medics, medication and procedures like epidurals and such like that mm -hmm. as you're doing. It sounds to me like the interaction with the patient almost like a little bit of a, a speed dating. Mm -hmm. Not that mm -hmm. not that you're there to impress them mm -hmm. or anything, but you know, I I for all these years I've known you. I love talking to you about work and I understand that, you know, you work very long hours, but it's just as you know I work in advertising and the same things a lot of my work kind of changed week by week, but a lot of what I do feels similar and predictable. Still, when there are a tiny little bit of unpredictable element arises, everybody freaks out in my industry. And I don't know whether some of that is on purpose or not, um, but I feel like that's what you're dealing with every single day. And not only that, you know, not knowing about, uh, you know, a patient's background exactly. And I don't know how, how that works. Like I imagine in my head, a woman is, you know, show up at the delivery room and you're there five minutes later. And if the woman is even 30 years old, I mean, for me, I see my own medical record, it's a very thick pile. How could you possibly surface the ones you need to know right away? Yeah. I will be panicking. Like I will panic thinking about that yeah. right now. I mean, we're fortunate in the sense that we do have a big head start in the most of the patients that we see at Mass General have had prenatal care. So there are some places that take care of women. Boston City Hospital would be one of them, although many of their patients do have prenatal care. They're more likely to get the patients who walk off the street. Mm. No prenatal care. You know, here I am pregnant. I didn't know I was pregnant or here I am delivering. Um, with much with complicated medical histories. Mm -hmm. We have less of that 
so we are able to quickly look at their um, and, and if they have comorbid or, or additional medical history we're able to often talk about it meet them beforehand and work it through beforehand in a real multidisciplinary way so a lot of the medical details are known before but as you said that's a piece of a life mm -hmm. and how that all fits together and how it impacts them and how that adds up to the way they're going to want to be related to mm -hmm. in this kind of environment mm -hmm. is a big unknown. Mm -hmm. Also, the kind of medicine we're going to need to practice in any given day is a big question mark for us because we do everything from a simple, straightforward epidural for labor to helping to resuscitate a woman who's having a terrible life-threatening bleed. Uh, and which, of course, in general, mm -hmm. is many, many times more rare. But we are we do collect patients who ha are high risk for one reason or another. So it's more common those kinds of um, what we call higher acuity or or more um, serious medical things mm -hmm. are much more common in our service than they are in some other services because people refer patients to us mm -hmm. who are likely to have those things. Mm -hmm. So when I walk in the door tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. and I leave tomorrow it'll be at 5, anything could happen in that period of time. Yeah. I could spend most of my time in re relatively straightforward where the interactions are the most challenging thing. I could spend my time in more life and death and crisis situations and everything in between. And even moment to moment, mm -hmm. very little of it is scheduled. In most of anesthesia, you're running with an operating room schedule mm -hmm. for general kinds of cases like hip replacements and, and knee surgeries and whatever, and you're assigned to accompany a surgeon and, and do your work in partnership with the surgeon. So at least the day before, you know what those cases are and you do those cases. Every once in a while, something shifts. When you do anesthesia on a labor floor, there are a few scheduled cesarean deliveries, but the vast majority of what happens is unexpected at that time and place. Mm -hmm. And the actual course of events is not predetermined. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very amazing. It. Whenever I feel like I look at my own schedule again from 9 to 5, 9 to 6, everything is planned out. And sometimes people freak out if somebody drops a meeting just two hours in advance. It's like, come on, how could you do this, right? And, and I think, you know, um, to respect your time, I'm also very interested in learning about research. And I know you coach a lot of um, interns and... Um, but I want to kind of pause on part one, and I've heard some of the moments that, that are really uh, worth cherishing for as well. Like, you know, what are some of the moments when the mother sees her baby for the first time? Would someone give you a cell phone and say, could you, you were that person in that room, could you take a picture Oh, for yeah. Us? I have pictures on my cell phone. I've seen... You know, big tough guys move to tears. Um, it just, it's incredible the way, I mean, the vast majority of people are just transformed in that moment. And to be there and to be part of that or witness to that or, or 
as you even making a record of that, taking the picture for them mm -hmm. is just incredible. It's such a personal touch to it this. Is. It never gets old. I feel like your, um, your work has so much life to it and it doesn't feel transactional at all. And I love that aspect. And I was so excited about this episode because I feel like people who are doing their everyday type of work, programming, consulting, advertising, really don't get to witness or imagine on what your line of work is like. And it's so rewarding for a reason. And thank you for painting that picture. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I mean, obviously everything has its mundane aspects, but it's very hard to not appreciate the gift you're being given in this kind of circumstance. Uh, yesterday I was thinking there's one category question uh, that I wrote down, I was reading an article. It was talking about the secret origin type of question. I was thinking that's interesting. And I thought one of the most intriguing uh, experience about you is uh, um, you worked at a, um, a consulting firm, a very prestigious um, firm. I believe you were a, a math major, done very well in school, and landed a job, uh, if I may mention Bain, um, that anybody in their early 20s would dream of, and still today. And I think that was kind of a career switch very early on. Um, it's something, what, what was that trigger point like that you snapped yourself out of something that's almost obvious into something, in my mind, full of uncertainties, more school, more work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's in a way, it's, it's sort of not that mysterious. My father's father was a doctor and he quite explicitly decided that my father would be a doctor, would be a surgeon, and would be the specialty surgeon that he became, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't what he was interested in doing. And whereas my father didn't explicitly say anything like that, I definitely grew up feeling like I was supposed to be a doctor mm -hmm. from the earliest time. And the first jobs I ever got were volunteering in the hospital, etc. So when I went to college, I was what I called a closet pre-med. Mm -hmm. I didn't major in science, and I took the bare minimum of courses, and I planned to take the, the entrance exam, the MCATs, when I graduated. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do something different right out of college, which was less common then than it is now. Lots of people experiment with lots of things after college. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of isolated up at Dartmouth, so I was kind of at the mercy of the companies that came to Dartmouth to recruit. I couldn't really travel around and, and do a lot of interviews. And one of the companies that came were the management consulting companies. And I, and I talked to the people from Bain, and they were super nice and young, attractive, and they were fun. and. I had no idea what it was they did and was completely shocked when I had an opportunity to work there. Ironically, when I accepted the job, afterwards I found out that there was a retreat, like an orientation retreat. On the weekend, I was supposed to take the MCAT. So by working there, I wasn't able to take the MCAT and ultimately didn't take it till four years after I graduated from college, which was totally painful. <laughs> but, um, I really liked the job there. I, uh, I, I had a class mm -hmm. of young, fantastic people, some of whom I'm still friendly with. Mm -hmm. And 
we flew all over and they treated us really well. Mm-hmm. I can't say I was overly moved by the work itself, which is only a f- reflection on me, not the work. And when it came time to think of what was next, most of them after two years applied to business school. I did think about applying to business school. I took the GREs or GMAT or whatever it was. Oh, God. Um, But I thought maybe I should work in another job um, within business to try to sort it out. And someone there helped me get a job in venture capital. I think it was a number of things. First of all, the person for whom I worked in venture capital was my only boss to this day who I really, really didn't like. Mm -hmm. He was just really mean, uh, and particularly mean to women. Um, And I have, despite all the different field, very male-oriented fields that I've been in, Mm -hmm. um, he was by far the only one that I would say was just flat out Mm -hmm. mean. Uh, So I think it was partly that, partly the fact that he was interested in healthcare investments, but obviously didn't care about patients. It was just more a way to make money that actually pushed me more toward medical school. Mm. At the time, I wanted to try to do both medical school and business school, but 25 years ago, it was highly discouraged. I tried. Once I got accepted to medical school, I actually approached them about doing a combined degree, but no one was interested in letting you do that. I mean, they weren't going to stop you from doing sequential degrees. Mm. Um, And my original plan was actually to do medical school, but not necessarily take care of patients, try to go into medical administration. Mm -hmm. But one thing led to another, and it just sort of stuck the patient. And even to this day, the fact that I'm more than 50% taking care of patients would not have been what I would have predicted. Mm-hmm. But I just really liked the healthcare side more than the business side of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. I know this is not my uh, domain of expertise, but um, it makes total sense. And one of the questions, as I've, um, when I came out of college, I had a several friends, they probably wouldn't call them a group of friends, who were contemplating medical school. And there's one gentleman who didn't realize that he was so interested in medicine until he was in his late 20s. Then I remember some of my doctor friends whose kids then graduate uh, from college and they were building, kind of painting a path for them. So that's a long way of saying that there's so many people still today are really considering medical school. And then I think that kind of lead into part of your job is to coach younger doctors. And, you know, it's a very tough decision. Unlike what I do, I can get a PMP project management certificate for about three months and I can drop it. It's not useful. Versus this path is so difficult. Um, what are some of the, the tips and tricks and advice uh, that you have for people in their early 20s graduating from school to really consider this path? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to, this is one of those times where I have to not look at my own circumstance but look outside because I, for me, it just, I was already sort of in totally, totally 
I don't want to say indoctrinated, but sort of indoctrinated with medicine. Mm -hmm. The thing that always amazes me is the residents and students that I meet who had no physicians in their family Mm. and out of nowhere decided to become a doctor. That fascinates me. Mm. Um, Like, where did they get that idea? Now, sometimes it's it's disease-related, meaning either they themselves or someone close in the family mm-hmm. was ill at a formative time. Mm-hmm. And so they had a lot of interaction with the healthcare system and that made them very much want to be a doctor. So that's certainly some of the cases, mm-hmm. but others, not so much. Maybe due to some TV shows. <laughs> yeah, so, oh. yeah. I mean, <laughs> or someone they met who they thought was particularly cool or they could relate to. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say, like anything else, you're going to work really hard in, or at least spend a lot of your waking hours in whatever you do. So you have to be passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the, within that there are lifestyle choices you can make, but there's almost nothing these days that you can do that truly is wholly a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. Because still, if you add up the number of hours you're doing it, it's mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So you have to be passionate about whatever it is. I would say that medicine is a big commitment. It's a long training period. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, a very costly, certainly for those people who have to take out loans and don't have any help with scholarships or family financing or whatever else. It can be overwhelming. And you cannot hold your breath for 10 years later when you finally get out of training. I mean, you have to be living each time along the way. It has to be part of your life. Otherwise, I think it it can't work. Mm -hmm. But my sense is the people who go into healthcare in general, not just becoming a physician, do it because they feel like it's like they have to. You know, it's it's the thing to do. It's just the most interesting thing for them to be in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they choose specific areas or kinds of training within it because they meet someone or people who remind them of them or who they want to be or who they admire or who take them under their wing. And that's almost always the way it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, some mentor, it doesn't even have to be a long-term mentor, it can be even a single interaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way I got into anesthesia, a little bit my father who was a surgeon mentioned it, but I went, I told you I wasn't even sure I was going to actually be a clinician, but I did did decide ultimately, all right, I'll, I need to do something mm-hmm. um, to at least get a little bit of training so I can practice medicine if I want to. And I went through all of my rotations that you do in the hospital, mm-hmm. and they were all interesting, mm-hmm. but I didn't really feel like any of them were, I couldn't really see me in any of them. Mm-hmm. And then I took an anesthesia elective because my father suggested it. And, and you don't hear a lot about anesthesia in medical school. And I met a woman who was just visiting the Mass General from Australia. She, I mean, so the fact that she would be so instrumental. Her husband was doing a fellowship from Australia mm-hmm. and at the Mass General. And she just came along and was there for a year as a young faculty member. But she was the first person who I met, and I thought, I want to be her. And that was it. 
-hmm. It wasn't even so much the subject matter of anesthesia. And I certainly wasn't thinking of obstetric anesthesia at the Mm -hmm. time. It was just her. I thought, oh, yeah, I want to be her. Mm -hmm. And there it was. That was uh, one of the life-defining moments uh, of knowing what you want to do. It can be quite magical. Mm -hmm. And for me, that moment was, excuse me, being a 15, 16-year-old in Beijing and watching uh, American Canadians play ice hockey against each other. And I thought, that's my life calling. Obviously, that led to playing hockey in high school and in college, but pretty much stopped there, knowing that, you know, I'm 5'4", 120 pounds, probably (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't last too long. Um, But it led you other places. Exactly. Other opportunities, uh, meeting interesting people, and still be able to talk about it today. Um, one of one of the things I think leading to um, I think it's called faculty development or resident. I'm trying to really practice uh, my English terms here. People are like, "You're English good enough for the podcast?" Until last night when I was preparing. For <laughs> That's this. it. Faculty development. Um, I, as you know, I am uber passionate about internships and mm-hmm. coaching young people. Even as early as middle school and high school, I just I love it, and mm-hmm. I would do it for free, and I did it at Sapien, I'm still doing it at Arnold, and every waking moment, just thinking about it, um, makes me feel very special, very significant. Um, and But based on my experience, to be quite honest, it's never been an area that the company necessarily focused on yeah. all that much. And, uh, you know, it, it, to be honest, and also when it comes to promotion, that's not something that was ever talked about. Um, you know, in one case, it was my boss's boss's boss who wrote me a letter to tell me how great, head of North America, tell me how great it was. But that was the, uh, the end of the story. That didn't stop me. Um, and I know that's something that I hear everybody talk about. That's what you do. And I wonder what you do and what is... <laughs> it's such a... You're, you, I so understand what you're saying. <laughs> So I did faculty development for 15 years before anyone noticed. And the way I got even a pseudo title, which was not this title, under my last chair, Mm -hmm. was because they were going to undergo a review. Um, Specifically what that meant was that some other chairs, Mm -hmm. national chairs, were going to come in and sort of uh, do an assessment of the department mm-hmm. and they sent along a list like we want to hear about A, B, C, D, E mm-hmm. and within that list was what you do to develop your faculty mm-hmm. so this work that I had been doing for all of this time that I had been sort of talking to them about the importance of and everything else that they couldn't have cared less about all of a sudden mm-hmm. they came to me and they said you, we need you to write up something that about this because they needed to be able to show it show that they were doing work in it and even then even though I then sort of had a title and Lee helped advise me as a way to get on one of the important departmental committees as the representative of this I had no authority it wasn't until 15 years later when uh, chair my current woman chair from California moved and she was very passionate about faculty development. She was doing it in a much more uh, usual setting, mm-hmm. which was she was vice chair of faculty development of research. 
at U University of Southern California, UC San Francisco, UCSF. Um, and that is a more traditional path because research is at least, in a formal sense, you always have a research mentor. Mm -hmm. So there's always career development that's supposed to be happening. And there are grants where you have a mentor and grants where you're the mentor of, and it's a very formal process. But she clearly believed in it the way you believe in it, mm -hmm. far more than just the pro forma scientific stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got, because of being on that committee, I got to be among the people who interviewed the candidates for chair. Mm -hmm. And when I met her, we began to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And we haven't stopped talking about it since. Wow. And she actually elevated the position to a vice chair. Mm -hmm. That it does not exist as a vice chair position mm -hmm. in certainly most anesthesia departments, mm -hmm. and even most departments in medicine. Lee, I think, may have a department that's a little bit similar now, mm -hmm. but it's very rare mm -hmm. in an academic medicine department. I think it's, this part is such a, a, you know, I know you have many core offerings, but even in my line of work, there is no just you know we don't go to school to study project management to study advertising it doesn't really uh, and then you look at those courses kids are learning about how to write uh, literature some basic math uh, curriculum you know courses and curriculum and I often notice even uh, in my business that people are not well prepared for their positions even coming out of I would imagine medical school. Uh, yeah. There are areas they're really not prepared for, and as you, I, I can imagine how anxious that must be. You're thrown in front of a patient, and you're there to deal with the most uh, kind of frustrating moment right then and there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you create a curriculum uh, for them, to kind of bridge the gap to fill that void. Um, so. Yeah, it's interesting. And what, I mean, there's sort of almost two aspects of it. One are the medical components of it, but the other is just, it's the first time that they really are having a job. Yeah. So just knowing how to find a job, because so much of medicine, that's one thing it keeps you for these 10 years when everyone else is writing CVs and applying for jobs. It keeps you in a much more um, pro forma setting where you're, it's almost more like applying to school. Mm -hmm. There are matches, you, you sort of enter lotteries and such, so it's really not interviewing for jobs in the same way. And then suddenly they're sprung free. Mm -hmm. So first of all, they have to figure out how to get a job. Mm -hmm. And then they have to figure out how to behave in a job and prosper in a job and advance their career and everything. So there's a whole set of skills that relate to being a attending physician some of which are medical, but almost more of them are about being a professional in the work for, in the workplace mm -hmm. that we spend a lot of time. So, for example, I end up seeing a lot of the residents before they graduate, fellows and helping them with their CVs and their cover letters and how do you get a job. Mm -hmm. Then we hire a lot of our own and I band them together the first year about, okay, now you're an attending, now you're a grown-up doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mean that they're children before, but all right, how do you, what do you do? How do you supervise other people? How do you build your academic career? How do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with people from other role groups? You know, sort of 
all those kinds of skills, because you're right, they don't tend to teach that stuff in residency, mm -hmm. even though the people are 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And it's so true, and that I feel like in all areas, this is, this is one I could so relate to, uh, given my passion um, as well, and it's just so reassuring and comforting to know that there is value, you know. Absolutely. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I do what I do because I love it, and sometimes thinking on top of the, you know, 50 hours already put in, this is just, just more. Mm -hmm. Is it, do people really uh, get it? Is mm -hmm. it really benefiting their lives? It's so. tremendous. I mean, we've seen what it's added to the young people's lives through our own children mm -hmm. and your efforts. Uh, but it, it's, I can tell you from someone who employs people in the workplace and sees young faculty mm -hmm. and who does well and who do, who struggles that it's it makes all the difference in the world but sometimes it takes takes a while it's not money making directly mm -hmm. people don't realize that it actually is cost effective yes because it's mm -hmm. expensive to hire people who don't work out mm -hmm. um, and it's expensive to have folks just never mind all of the other reasons to do it it's expensive to have folks who, uh, for whatever reason, struggle mm -hmm. or aren't productive. So people really should tie the two together. Mm. And that's maybe sort of a hint I would give, which is in this era of efficiency, mm -hmm. retention is very cost effective. Getting the right people in the door mm -hmm. and then retaining them for the mm -hmm. period of time that it makes sense to retain them mm -hmm. is extremely increases productivity and cost effectiveness so this is a very important part of that never mind that it's the right thing to do and it's tremendously satisfying and it's wonderful for the people being mentored i completely agree i feel like there are there are articles but not enough written in my opinion about retention mm -hmm. uh, when you look at a typical advertising model agency model 70 percent of the resources uh, you know, labor, fee, everything, goes towards new business that you may or may not get. And 30% of your existing resource serving existing businesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I conducted this, what I call a digital learning workshop at my current company, Arnold, it's just a form initially, a lot of me talking, then I try to beg people, talk to people, could you share your knowledge and yours? And now it's a, it becomes this uh, a form for people from different departments that you never even heard of to come contribute the content. And it was so touching to me to see that when people wrote about what they love, um, love about the agency, love about working here, and the reason was that once a month uh, learning workshop for them to get to know people, for young people as young as 23 years old, because I said, I don't care about what rank you are. You know, you have something to share. And there they are presenting something they carefully put together and with their presentation facilitation skills they loved it so well maybe that's something that you could write about yeah i mean you could be the one to write about this and really share your experience and and show that it does it does work because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have the courage or the wherewithal to try new things mm -hmm. especially if they don't think that it's going to work mm -hmm. but the way things get distributed is when people put it out there. Yeah. So that would be a wonderful thing for you to, you know, we could think about what 
how one shares in your industry, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of thing. But that would be a wonderful thing. And, and those kinds of things do get you promoted. Yeah. When you share things and are able to kind of get people's attention, yeah. that's when they get promoted. It's the internal work yeah. that doesn't, often doesn't. So but when you get other people's attention, mm-hmm. almost without exception of mm-hmm. what industry you're in, mm-hmm. those things get you promoted. I will. I have to write an article about retention and mm-hmm. about coaching and how they go kind of hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I love how you mentioned that um, you know when I started, when I was ready to start a podcast, and I looked online. Is it Google? Is it smart to start a podcast? Who listen to podcasts? And the responses kind of mix and match, and there are things saying don't do it. There are thousands of them out there. People don't care. People do not listen to long format conversations. It turns out turn out to be completely not true. Uh, I've done it for, I've only been doing this for two months, completely part-time, part-part-time. And uh, as we're sitting here, I think out of the 13 episodes I released, I am now achieving about 1,000 downloads. Wow. Yeah, so that's almost a little less than 100, depending on the person. Um, so that's thank incredible. you. What I find most amazing is before this interview, you went out for a run. Not because of the interview. The stress from the interview is this: <laughs> this your uh, daily, weekly routine. And uh, you know, when I see you, I I said, you know, my job starts at nine o'clock. I have to get on the train at eight. This is so. And um, you know, I was reminded that you need to be at work at time. Sometimes at seven in the morning. I I don't think I I, I didn't even know there was a seven o'clock. Um, so. I would love for other women and men to really listen listen to you and understand how you kind of balance your life. Not to say that everything at all time needs to be perfect, but how do you you know find that balance from you know constant? Well, what is the other way I was trying to say this? Like um, I love one of the saying to say that if you think you need to be balanced all the time, that's a very artificial way to approach yeah. the mind. Yeah. So how do you manage all? I'm not good at relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something, there's only so many hours in the day and I do have to sleep. I'm not one of those people who sleeps four or five hours a day. I I really like seven or eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And I work very long hours. I have to be at work before seven almost every day. And so, and, and work about six days a week. So... I am probably at least 12 hours. So I don't relax very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's okay for me. Although as I get older, I do need to sort of reevaluate if it continues to be okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm always, almost always doing at least one thing mm-hmm. or I, you know, always on the move. Mm-hmm. But I pretty much do a lot of the things I want to. I exercise because I really like to exercise. If I didn't like to exercise, I can't say I would necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow it all sorts of, it sort of fits mm-hmm. in. What are some of the other things, I guess, you said you're not good at relaxing, but no. aside from working out, what do you find silly things to do? Um, Yes, I love People Magazine. (laughs) I'm very good at knowing what's up in pop culture. 
Um, so yeah, it's certainly exercising is almost every day. I love reading the newspaper and sort of popular culture things, but don't get to read a lot of fiction. Mm-hmm. I love being with the boys. So, and they're, especially now that they're older, they're around it sort of off time. So whenever that is, I love spending time with them. Mm-hmm. This vacation last week we had, we actually were very domestic. We stayed in together and cooked and I baked a lot and everything, mm-hmm. which was pretty atypical for me, but it was really, really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do housework. <laughs> we see movies, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes out, out of the house and often inside. We saw Wild last night uh, mm-hmm. for New Year's Eve, the Reese Witherspoon movie. Um, talk to friends. Uh, I don't have a lot of hobbies per se that you would think of collecting things or uh, creating things, sewing things like that. Life is pretty full (laughs) without. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but that's it. I feel like it's balanced Mm -hmm. between kind of mental and physical and usually enough sleep Mm -hmm. uh, and family. Yeah. yeah, family. Family's huge. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah, I'm part of the, uh, your culture as well. Yeah. And I adore both of the boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could talk about them all day long, which is not something I'm, I'm going to do. I guess my uh, my last question, I think, it's not to overlook being, being a woman, a working woman, in a very demanding job that I cannot imagine. And I can't say that I know what it is like now after the interview. I don't. Um, you know, I, I can imagine, I cannot imagine myself uh, kind of managing that for the for you for the past 20, 25 years and raising two, um, two gentlemen now, and they are absolutely incredible. What are some of your advices for working mothers uh, who, at times, I mean, I, I hope to become a mom too, and uh, how do you balance that? What are some of your advice for them? I would say don't worry about being too perfect. Don't worry about always saying the right thing, doing the right thing, going to the right classes. Just be yourself. Mm-hmm. We did not, we, we laugh about it now. We did not worry about every single thing that came out of our mouths and whether we were using the right parenting techniques. We didn't read parenting books ever. <laughs> you know, you can only do so much. <laughs> we just tried to be honest. We Sometimes we were cranky. Um, well, we took them grocery shopping because we needed to go grocery shopping. We, I didn't sit on the floor and play a million games with them, but I did really engage with them. I, Because I, I like to do running and stuff, I took them with me. I taught them how to ride bikes. Um, somewhat reluctantly for, for at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be my, my goal and my, my advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you also are trying to fit some particular pattern or, mm-hmm. or s- crazy schedule with the kids as well, I don't know how you could possibly do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it to try to be more selfish. I just, in my heart of hearts, I thought it would work out okay. And I feel like it's worked out okay. Yeah. I mean, they're, they have interests. We didn't force them to play instruments when they didn't want to or mm-hmm. do all the right after-school activities. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not that we didn't keep track of them. We just sort of, we just kind of let it happen a little more organically and, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't always pretty, but we're super close. Uh, we, to this day, even though they're 20 and 17, they are very, um, very open with us. They, this last week, they each spent here with their respective girlfriends. So I feel like they're not running away, but they still want to come home and share these things with us. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean everything is perfect by any means, or there haven't been struggles, because there have. Mm-hmm. But that would be my advice. That's great. I, I notice one thing as you're painting, that you never ask them to be overachievers. You never kind of nudge them. I don't recall any conversations of, do you get A pluses? And I laugh, saying, you know, people say that um, A minus is the Asian F. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might say that we we set a very high um, bar in terms of they're doing their best. But certainly, when it came to enumerating that everyone had to do sports and everyone had to do music and everything, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. we didn't. I mean, it just we would have gone crazy. I mean, we wouldn't have known where to start. It wasn't our personalities anyway. And mm-hmm. we could never have tried to keep up with that kind of thing. Uh, it just would have felt artificial. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to give the impression that we were super laid back, because we're not. <laughs> and we didn't pretend to be different right. from who we were. They know exactly how unlaid back we are. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Awesome, Lisa. I was wondering if there's anything that I haven't covered. I'm sure there are plenty of vast amount of things I haven't covered, um, but if there's anything you find intriguing to talk about um, that, you know, I two other categories, to be honest, I kind of covered all, everything here uh, is, I thought about, you know, social media these days and how that contributed to medicine or just generally how medicine kind of changed over time um but those are basically the things we kind of vaguely talked about yeah i mean i i think i have probably more to say on the things that we have talked about Mm -hmm. social media and medicine i'm not a good person to talk about lee is Um, yeah (laughs) yeah and medicine changing over time actually he could also talk about Mm. um it is changing over time very much so uh, and I try to be a part of it in some administrative ways because mm-hmm. I think it's a good way to be proactive and not be cranky that things aren't the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. But again, I think he'll be a good person to talk about it. I think in some ways things have improved. In other ways, we've sort of lost sight of some things, mm-hmm. like just the ability for the patient to feel taken care of as opposed to mm-hmm. split up between nine million different little specialists and everything. So interesting. Um, but, you know, it, there's no point in, in just criticizing, and there's certainly no point in looking back to the glory days, which were never as glorious as you make them out to be. Right, because 1800 was perfect. No, it wasn't. (laughs) I know, that's such a fallacy. Yeah. Um, So I think it's important to be, it's part of the reason why I do administration, even now, after all these years where I feel like I've kind of done enough administration, is Mm -hmm. if you continue to try to be part of the solution or setting up systems for the future, then you... 
again, you be you move forward mm -hmm. and you try to impact moving forward rather than just being a sort of sideline commentator. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I hope you uh, had some fun. Yeah, that's awesome. As well. And I just, I get so excited and, and I can tell you that when was the last time for me to feel this way? Um, I mean, not that I'm easily amused, I, I love sports, hockey, but the fact that I could sit down and talk to people and really appreciate and learn so much, even just before talking to you, researching, and now talking to you, and then, you might not believe this, but altogether I might spend uh, eight to ten hours uh, to compile Incredible. the knowledge. And I, I love it, I just love uh, revealing what we do for, <laughs> I feel what I do is so insignificant, you know, but you never, you always make me feel very um, appreciated. It's a remarkable thing that you're doing and it's certainly a gift to me to have a moment to reflect because so often you're just doing and not reflecting. Yeah. What a gift on New Year's Day. Oh, thank you. Happy New Year. And to you. Listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F E I S W O R L D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.